Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. That sound you heard at the very top of the show, it's so exciting! It's the A League of Their Own TV series coming yes! to Amazon Prime in August, Kate. Do, do, do. Yes, I've been waiting for this. I've been since I heard about it over a year ago. I knew you knew if they were going to reboot A League of Their Own and if it was going to be on Amazon, they were going to do this thing right. And now we don't know if they did it right, but it appears that they have hit all of the points that we made on our Does It Hold Up? Like, they're doing this thing. Yeah, so the series is co-created, I believe, by Abby Jacobson, mm-hmm. who I don't know if you're a Broad City fan, but I am, like, full send. I love that show. So that makes me really excited for it. And then, like you said, in the trailer, there's a look between Abby Jacobson mm. and Darcy. Wait, wait, wait. Are you speaking of the moment? Because there was a number of little moments in it that yes. g- gave me the good gay vibes. When she slides into home. Yes, I yes, was. Yes, there yes, there yes. was a look between Abby Jacobson and Darcy Carden that made me think that some of the things that we thought that the first iteration of League of Their Own didn't do enough of will be done in this series. Yes. And then another thing that made me feel hopeful about it was that Shantae Adams is one of the stars. There's going to be people of color involved in this series. Mm-hmm. It's not just going to be the story of, of white baseball players. And so that was another thing that we critiqued when we watched A League of Their Own, the film. So it sounds like those were, were two kind of big does-it-hold-up issues. Yep. Just based off 30 seconds, I already have hope that those two things might be included in the refreshed version of it. Yeah, and so this series drops early August... Which means I don't know. I don't know what we're gonna do, Jess, for off the looking glass. But maybe we do like a, a, a weekly, review? like a weekly little Ooh. five minute recap of it because I don't know. I mean, I the fact that they are remaking a League of Their Own just has little little eleven year old me giddy. So we'll we're name be the big segment. It. Will it hold up? Before we <laughs> before we start talking about what's in store for this episode, I'm gonna read like the log line to you. Yeah, just like as an official start of A League of Their Own TV series season. Okay. A League of Their Own evokes the joyful spirit of Penny Marshall's beloved classic while widening the lens to tell the story of an entire generation of women who dreamed of playing professional baseball. The show takes a deeper look at race and sexuality following the journey of a whole new ensemble of characters as they carve their own paths towards the field, both in the league and outside of it. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited, deaf, but it's good. I'm excited. So there, there's not going to be a Dottie. There's not going to be a Kit. There's not going to be a Marla. They're different characters, but it's the same, the same era, the same vibe. And maybe some newer, more modern themes will be addressed that 
were not in the first version. So we're excited for it. <sighs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I do think we're going to have to do a will it hold up <laughs> for League of Their Own season one. But I guess for now, we'll tell people what is on this episode of Off the Looking yes. Glass because I'm excited because you have brought us an extra extra in this episode. Do you want to give a little tease here? I yeah, will. I mean, so this is about a a sports league from the 70s that no mm. longer exists that I was excited to find out about because I didn't even know about it until I talked to two of our guests, Frankie and Lindsay, who you will hear more from them later in the episode. But this is something that we, we haven't really covered a lot, Kate, which is mm-hmm. American football. Yes. Yes. And their book is Hail Mary. And we will give you all of the information about that throughout the extra extra and at, at the end of the show. But I'm excited to hear it. I'm also very interested in what our guest today has to say since we have World Cup champion Carly Lloyd joining Off the Looking Glass. And as always, don't skip the ads. Before we get to the intro for this week's guest, just a little PSA that we talked to Carly before the recent U.S. Women's National Team Pay Equality Collective Bargaining Agreement. So that is why we do not bring it up. But we did want to talk to her about some culture comments she made about the U.S. Women's National Team. So we decided to dig into those. Our guest today is a two-time FIFA World Cup champion, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, a two-time FIFA World Player of the Year. She scored the gold medal winning goals in the 2008 and 2012 Olympics, and she scored a hat trick against Japan in the 2015 World Cup Final. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on, Carly Lloyd. Okay, so this is a great place to start because this is like a concept we talk a lot about on this pod and that I think a lot about, this concept of generational inheritance in women's sports. Like how we can create both on the team side and in individual sports, like this world in which the next generation is stepping in at at least a level above where we stepped into the sport at. So I think about like when you start first playing for the U.S. Women's National Team in 2005, you're not that far removed from like the jet fuel of the 99ers team and the madness of all of that. When you step in into 2005, like how much of that jet fuel in your mind, like the way you felt it, how much of that jet fuel remained from the 99 team? I would say almost 100%. You know, I think what the 91ers, the 99ers, I mean, what they did to just breed a cultural winning mentality with the national team is like nothing I've ever seen. And oftentimes it wasn't always the prettiest out there, but the team just always found a way to win. And that was what the U.S. national team was all about from the moment I got there. I mean, the moment I got there, I came from college and then the under 21 level. And then I I came in in 2004 and trained with them towards the, I think it was the camp where they were actually selecting the Olympic roster for Sydney. So it was a bloodbath. Like I came in and I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, people are yelling at me, defend. I remember Bryce Curry's you know, yelling at me a five and five game. I remember Mia Ham, you know, wanting the ball at her at her certain foot and 
if you didn't play it there, you know, you were screened at, but it was like, Hey, if you're coming into this environment, you know, you better get used to it. You better roll your sleeves up and you better just earn your right to be there. So it was instant and the level was so high. The speed of play was so incredibly high, you know, and that's changed a little bit over the course of the years. I think that we've kind of made an easier adjustment for some of the younger players to come in, try to make them feel a little bit more comfortable because it is a daunting environment. And if you're not comfortable, you're not going to play well, but there was some kind of level of respect there that if you actually did come in and get through all that, you know, you became a better player in person. And that's what I'll cherish the most, you know, going through that. I'm curious, like how you think that resiliency has gone away. Like, is there something that you saw in your last five years on the national team that you think could have never happened in your first five years on the national team? Is it something like chartered flights or, you know, massage tables or like extra perks that you get now? Like what exactly has that change been? How is it and how has it gone away? Yeah, I mean, I think in the beginning of my career, we traveled with such a small staff. I mean, there were maybe three coaches head coach, assistant coach, goalkeeper coach. If we were lucky, maybe we'd have another coach at a major event. We would typically have two massage therapists. We would have two trainers, a press officer and an admin person and, you know, a doctor that floats in and out, but that's really it. The team is up to 58 to 60 delegation members. It's almost triple the amount of players that are actually in camp. So while things have grown and evolved and it's, it's unbelievable because I think the amount of resources that we've had and being able to, you know, have three massage therapists now and being able to have a full-time PT and a full-time trainer, and then, you know, two other trainers come in, it's amazing. But I also think it could be a, you know, a blessing and a curse at the same time, because when a younger generation of players are now entering that space without a lot of kind of the old hatters who have kind of continued the tradition of, of what, you know, the mentality has been with the national team for so long, you just are, are kind of given this unbelievable environment. And it can be a little tricky because while we're really excited to have all those things now, you know, it's not really, I guess, I don't know, like teaching them the tools to be able to challenge themselves through adversity. I think, you know, in the beginning of the national team, there was just a breed of players that wanted to win. That was it. Like would break legs, you know, would run into a brick wall for their teammates, would do anything possible to win. And whether that was winning in the 91st minute in overtime, we would always find a way. And so I think, you know, the national team now currently is, is a really talented group. I mean, probably some of the best players that we've had as far as talent, but we all know that talent only gets you so far. So it, it's going to be up to each individual to, to really challenge themselves and push one another. I think it starts at training. It starts uh, on the training pitch, you know, being able to push each other. I can recall, you know, several of our training sessions having the beep test and then walking up to the grass field in Carson, California, our legs are all wobbling and we had a 5v5 tournament and people were on the ground and it was a bloodbath. But you know what? 
it bred a lot of resiliency because if we knew we were tired, we knew we could still push through it. So um, yeah, it's, it's changed, but my hope is, you know, that all athletes around, you know, don't shy right away from adversity and understand that it is hard to be a professional athlete. Not everyone's going to like you. Not everything's going to be easy, but it's, it's important to enjoy the process and embrace the process. We're probably about the same age. I mean, I'm 40, so we're probably about the same age. And you always hear people saying, like, the World War II generation, right? Like, they were the best. And you kind of look at it and you're like, well, actually, maybe things were kind of crappy then, but now we, like, look at it with rose-colored glasses. So I feel like there's always this, like, balance when you get to a certain point, like, where, Carly, you and I are not dragging Jess into this madness, where you... I think the 99ers have almost reached this level of reverence where it's like they are like the World War II generation, right? Like where it's like they could do no wrong and you were on the inside of it. So like you actually saw it a little clearer. And I think we always have to guard against as we get older being like, okay, things are different. And and I do this too. I'm like, things are different. And I swear, I don't think they're better, right? And they're not better. It's not like a lateral move to different. It feels like we're not heading in the right direction, but I'm like, Every generation must feel this way. I try to remind myself of that. Does that resonate with you trying to balance like, I swear my perspective on this is that we're not heading in the right direction, but also does every generation feel this way? (laughs) No, I mean, you you see it with the NBA. I mean, you see the likes of, you know, Jordan back in the day and Kobe, and then, you know, you kind of compare it to this season now, like it it is a little bit different. I mean, they're playing a little bit more games and, and whatnot, but it is, it's, it's different. And I had the opportunity to, you know, play with some of those 99ers and then also the opportunity to kind of shift into this, you know, new generation of players. And, you know, I felt it was my duty every single training session to work as hard as I could. And sometimes that meant, you know, getting into hard tackles with my teammates. Sometimes that meant, you know, maybe fouling people on occasion, but that was what the team was always built on. That is what defined the national team. And so there's no days off, you know, when you're in camp, you're on in camp. And, you know, it was always an honor to be called in and I never took that for granted. And so I tried to instill that in some of the players that, you know, came in to the team because, yeah, like that was my duty. I mean, the the players before me did that and I would be doing them a disservice and myself a disservice if I didn't continue to try to instill that in them. So it's different. It's just, I mean, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere in the world. It's everywhere in the workforce. You know, I, I think that we're slowly getting away from the important core values of what it means to be a human being, you know, to work hard, to not have anything handed to you, to not shy away from a challenge, to be rejected, but then to come back for more and come back better. I think so often we reach our hand into the excuse jar and it's like, you know, who can I blame this on? And this isn't my fault. And every human being needs to wake up and look at themselves in the mirror when they get up, you know, out of bed. Are you being the best version of yourself? Because if you're being the best version of yourself, then ultimately the collective will be the best. And I just don't think that the world from a sports perspective and just in general, the general population are, are doing that. You know, the, 
I miss the old school mentality of just literally rolling your sleeves up, you know, getting some bruises on your knees and just getting to work. You know, uh, part of this idea of generational inheritance, I guess I have just come from it from the assumption that like everybody wants generational inheritance. And I think generally that's true because we want to grow women's sports. We want to grow like the bottom line of women's sports, like the platform and the dollars that come to women's sports every generation. But I think one thing that as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking through is also as the platforms grow, as the money grows, entitlement can grow. Like other things grow alongside of that. And so like the test case of the U.S. Women's National Team is just always fascinating to me because it's a very clear example of the platform has grown. As our world has grown, it's grown. And yet I've always assumed all of that is good. But it doesn't, there, there could be side effects to that, right? Like we don't, we, like women's sports is always coming from the mentality you're talking about. Like we have to prove ourselves. We have to earn it every step of the way because even when we earn it, a couple of years later, it's gone and we have to re-earn it. But so I guess the question I'm getting at here is like, there's probably a dark side to the U.S. Women's National Team, like having these huge platforms and more money coming in because there can be a kind of like frenzy to it and like a grab what you can while you can because you don't know if this is going to go away kind of vibe to it. I don't know if any of this is resonating with you, but like, do you connect with this idea of like, as a sport grows, like there can be like these side effects you might not have been anticipating? Oh, most definitely. You know, as, as I was just listening to you speak, I think everyone has to ask themselves the question of like, what's your why? Why are you playing? Like, why are you a professional soccer player? My why has always been because I have such a love and a passion for the game and this addictive personality of becoming better every single day. Like, that's my why. Sure, do I want to earn a nice living and sign on with brands and secure my, my future for my family and, and make sure we're in a comfortable spot? Absolutely, 100%. But if you answer your question as to, you know, well, I'm, I'm playing for money, I'm playing for fame, I'm playing to have a huge social media presence, like that's the dark side. And, you know, I've, I've built my brand. I have had endorsement deals. I've been in commercials. I've done a ton of appearances, but from 20, 2005 to 2015, I had one sponsor. I was with Nike and that was it. And, you know, I just played and I played and once 2015 hit and I scored three goals in a world cup final, my agent couldn't put his phone down. And so my world off the field and on the field blew up and things changed for me. But I started from the ground up and worked my ass off every single day. I mean, days where I would, I would wake up and I'm, and I'm like, you know, when am I going to, you know, when, when's the world going to finally like see what I can bring and when's that going to happen? You know, but I just kept getting up. I kept getting up all for the unknown because I loved the sport and I was rewarded in 2015. But even though all of those appearances and all those sponsorships and, and, you know, my calendar was, was filled and I've been busy from 2015 on, which I'm extremely grateful for. Soccer was always first. That is my it. You know, and uh, I always, you know, was striving to be the best that I possibly could. And sure, there were moments where I had to 
miss things, miss training sessions, because to be completely honest, we, we make more money off the field than we do on the field. So I, I did have to take advantage of certain opportunities because when you retire from, well, in this case, me retiring from soccer, that's it. You don't have a pension. You don't have a retirement. You don't have a health credit that you can use and, and put towards health insurance. I mean, you're, you're done, you're done. And, uh, you know, I think that's what people don't, don't realize. But for me, I always chose soccer. You know, nothing was ever going to get in the way of that. Nothing was ever going to come ahead of that. And so that is the biggest question. You know, if you can ask an athlete, what's your why? Why are you doing this? And if they're like, because I absolutely love it, then that's great. But there are a lot of other things right now in the world that can distract people from that. And I think that's the true test of seeing, you know, who the greats are going to be and and who are the ones that are going to be successful. I do come from the younger generation that, you know, is the the social media generation who's like, I'm, I'm trying to like monetize my Instagram and my TikTok account now, even though like I've accomplished very little in my own sports media <laughs> career. Um, but I guess my question is like, when you see the way that like the powers that be keep female athletes down and like, you know, keep things a certain way, like the way they've always been. Can you really, I guess, question any teammate for trying to have, you know, for their why being different than yours, for trying to have a larger following, for trying to get more endorsements while they're younger, for for having a different reason for going to the pitch every day than, than you did? No. Um, my level of success is going to look different than your level of success and someone else's level of success. You know, my my goal from day one was to be the best soccer player that I could be, to be the best soccer player in the world. I was reaching for the highest, highest point of that mountain. And that's what breeds a winning mentality. And so every athlete is in the driver's seat of how far they want to go. You know, what is your, what is your level of success? Do you want to have more of a social media presence and you're just okay with being an average soccer player. You're just okay with, you know, maybe making a roster here and there, but earning a lot more money off the field. Everybody's different, but you can't have that and win all the time. So like anything, there has to come sacrifices. And I sacrificed everything in my life. You know, my, my husband, my friends, my family, any semblance of a normal life. But to me, that was worth it. So I think there's varying degrees of that. But I also do think that athletes do need to become stronger and mentally stronger. And um, that is what kind of was there in that old school mentality. But yeah, it's different, you know, but to each their own. When you're on a team, if the collective goal is to win, you know, everyone mostly needs to be bought in to win. You don't win with half the people, you know, feeling one way and then half the people, you know, actually really wanting to win. So that's the beauty of team sports. You know, individual sports are are different. I have not have yet to play an individual sport, but um, that's kind of the beauty of what makes certain generations, certain teams, uh, the great. Yeah. I think when you were, were talking there, I was thinking about this idea that I think there is kind of like a casual perspective that female athletes or, and maybe the U.S. Women's national team in particular, like they're kind of a monolith, right? Like 
you all believe the same things, you're all pulling for the same thing, and this becomes extra complicated because the U.S. women's national team reached this place where it was kind of about soccer, but also it became about so much more than soccer in so many different areas. You know, like it was almost like playing on the team was like a form of activism when you looked at it. And soccer was like a byproduct of that, but also the thing that fueled, it was like a weird kind of cycle. This is just my outside perspective. So this idea of like, what's it like when you're on a team and the whole point is to be rowing in the same direction, but like maybe at some points you're not like necessarily agreeing what the destination is. How do you be a leader on a team like that where there's so many things pulling at attention and end goals? You know, what I did my whole career was just individually be be the best that I could possibly be, you know, be the most hardest working player at training sessions, whatever my role was, whether it was coming off the bench, whether it was, you know, playing 10 minutes, I just tried to do that to the best of my ability. The beauty of teams is that everyone is different and everyone is unique and everyone brings a unique skill set. And when I look through my eight championships, four World Cups and four Olympics, every team I was a part of was different. And every championship had a different storyline and a different journey. And it was just, it's just really cool to look back and, you know, just, I don't know, just remember some of the the storylines, you know, like in 2008 Olympics, we lost Abby right before she broke her leg. Everyone's like, oh, the U.S. is done. They're not going to win. We came off of a horrible World Cup in 07. We were actually meant to probably win that. We had a talented group and we just rallied together and we just came together and we had players who were playing out of position, but they accepted their role. And that for me was like the best and most amazing team that I was part of just because of how special the storyline was, you know, Brazil was, was crushing us in the final, but we had an unbelievable goalkeeper and four unbelievable players in the back line. And we shut them out and we won. We beat a talented Brazil team because we were a team and I can go through all of the other ones, you know, in 2019 world cup, I think every player was had to focus on their performance or else you were going to be cut. And some players had a shorter leash than others. You know, some players were allowed to, to mess up. Some players weren't like I wasn't, my leash was probably, uh, you know, a, a centimeter, but we rallied together because there were a lot of unhappy people towards the coaching staff. And we had that common theme together. I think what's, what's important is that you're on a team full of unique individuals that want to express themselves in so many different ways. And that's amazing. But I think everyone has to just be respectful of one another. You know, you don't have to be best friends with the person, but just treat a person like a human being. You know, they walk, walk past you down the hall, say hello to them. And uh, I think that's That was just always the theme around the national team throughout the course of my career is that, you know, you step out in in between those lines and it doesn't matter what you look like, what your beliefs are, what your opinions are. The only thing that matters is you have respect for your teammate that's in front of you, the side of you, behind you, and you collectively just want to win. And that's the beauty of an amazing team. And yeah, so, you know, I've got eight eight different storylines in all of these championships and they're all different. And they're all learning experiences. 
one more question before we have to let you go, because I know it's uh, a little bit past time, but part of Kate's theory on generational inheritance is that like it, you create a standard that is then passed down to younger generations, uh, whether it's pay or, or treatment or anything like that. And when I think of the U.S. Women's National Team, I think of all of the activism that the team has done, whether it's, you know, the equal pay lawsuit or, or things that have happened off the pitch. And it sounds like to you, the most important thing has always been soccer, the team winning games. And so is is that activism branch, is that something that you, you do want to pass down to future generations? Is that something that's important to you that remains part of the identity of the national team? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I think what what we've done over the course of, you know, especially these last six years for fighting for what we deserve and, and all of that, it's for the next generation, you know, but that next generation has to come in and not take that for granted and continue, continue to have the mentality, continue to have the winning mentality, continue to have the, the respect for one another and the gratefulness to be there, to represent the crest, to represent your country, you know, whether that's picking up some gear and helping a staff member or picking up the balls or helping with the water. I mean, those, even though we have a huge delegation list, like it still feels good, you know, and, and towards the end of my career, like it still felt good to pick up a bag of balls and help because that's really what it's all about. And so Yes, while while winning and and doing everything in my power to help the team and, and be the best you know player that I possibly could was was first and foremost my my goals. Everybody chooses to use their platforms and their brand in different ways. But again, as a collective team, if you want to win, you all have to have a collective goal of winning and do everything possible to win. So I can leave the sport knowing that. I carried on the mentality till my very last step on the field. And that's what I, you know, hope that has instilled in, in others. And, um, you know, I want to continue to stay around the game and help in any way possible. That'll be a, you know, a non-negotiable for me. I want to keep, keep staying involved and, and just keep help, you know, helping and mentoring young girls, boys, and some of the next generation that is coming up through the pipeline in the national team. Okay, I'm getting greedy, but this could be a yes or no question. So that's up to you. When you walked off the pitch for the U.S. Women's National Team, did you leave it better than when you found it? Like me personally, you're saying? It doesn't have to be by your hand, but was the U.S. Women's National Team better in 2021 when you walked off the pitch the last time than when you walked on the pitch the first time in 2005? I would say it is better regarding conditions, you know, working conditions, pay. The jury's still out on on the mentality piece. But I saw some really good glimpses at the She Believes Cup. The younger players looked hungry, they looked passionate, they looked they looked really good, you know, and they grew as the tournament went on. So they just have to keep keep up that spirit. That's the beauty of of generations that change over the course of the career and and I still keep in touch with some of those players so I know they're coming to Philadelphia I hope to you know get over and watch a training session maybe get my maybe dust off my boots a little bit so yeah I I think that it's it's getting there all right we took too much of your time but we really Carly thank you so much for joining us appreciate it good to chat with you guys
Hi, I'm stand-up comedian Beth Stelling, and yes, I am a woman. But I'm also an athlete and a concerned sports fan. I'm concerned because it seems like women's sports dominate the nation's attention, and we need to have a conversation about men's sports. Uh-oh. Why are they so boring? Not fun to watch. It's a long fly ball. For too long, we've wondered if male athletes could ever reach the excitement of women in sports. That's why I started a brand new foundation that helps sports fans and athletes alike get more enjoyment out of their sports. My foundation is called the Masculine Equivalency Network's Balls Are Different program, or M-E-N-B-A-D. Men, bad. For some sports, the size of men and women's balls are different. So why don't we just go for it? And I mean really go for it. Let's just go nuts with the men's balls. Together we can make men's soccer balls slightly larger so their big goofy feet can kick it. Make men's tennis balls so massive that they can doink them with their silly little rackets. Make men's hockey pucks the size of sourdough loaves so guys can find them in their gym bag. Make men's lacrosse sticks longer and much thicker for no real reason. So that it's more fun to watch. We gotta get butts and seats. Maybe even one day we'll have people wearing men's jerseys. Men Bad is committed to ensuring that little baby boys grow up believing that there is a future for them in sports. Not like the same kind of future for for women in sports, but a future nonetheless. Please visit www.menbad.biz to sign the petition to make men's balls different. Thank you. If you were one of the 208 million people who tuned in to Super Bowl 56 this February, you might have noticed the NFL's push to have women and girls center stage in the opening festivities. Billie Jean King narrated a tribute before the game about the anniversary of Title IX and did the ceremonial coin flip at the 50-yard line, while members of the Flag Football League of Champions and youth girls players from the Englewood Chargers and the Watts Rams watched on the field as honorary captains. The honorary captains for Super Bowl 56, the captains of the California School for the Deaf, Riverside Cubs, and players from the League of Champions, Inglewood Chargers, and Watts Rams. And to flip the coin, sports icon, equality champion, and the first female athlete ever to receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom from here in Long Beach, California, Billie Jean King. It might have seemed to many people watching at home like the NFL was trying to send a message about women and girls in football. See, we're inclusive. Girls play now, too. But girls and women playing football is not a modern concept. Stories of women playing football go back decades. And maybe not coincidentally, national interest in professional women's football ignites right around the time that Title IX, Billie Jean King, and the NFL are all getting major media attention. The 1970s. The NWFL existing in the 70s, I think it was the perfect time period for this to happen. You have a lot of social movements that were kind of coming together to create this like perfect storm of a moment for a women's football league to take hold. 
That's Frankie Delacreta. Frankie and co-author Lindsay D'Arcangelo recently wrote the definitive book on women's pro football called Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Prior to the 70s, there had been women's football teams popping up all over the U.S., most notably ones that began under the direction of an agent named Sid Friedman. Friedman's aim was more of a gimmicky entertainment league than an actual football league. Think the uniforms and circus-like paparazzi in a league of their own. But he soon realized that women wanted to actually play in a real league. During this era, one of the most dominant women's football teams in history was founded, the Toledo Troopers. Diane Digilia stands 5'7 and weighs a slender 135 pounds. Debbie Brozka is an attractive 5'5, 112 pound redhead. Linda Jefferson, a statuesque 5'5 five five and 125 pounds. From Monday to Friday, they hold down regular jobs. On weekends, however, they literally play games with other girls. Diane, Debbie, and Linda are members of the Toledo Troopers, the unofficial world's champion women's football team. In the existence of two seasons, the Troopers have rolled over 12 straight opponents, averaging 34 points a game, allowing only four. We haven't met a team yet that can contain us, and I don't think we will, says the girls' head coach, Bill Stout. That's from the Dayton Daily News in 1973. A year later, a new organized women's football league would begin, called the National Women's Football League. The Troopers were one of their founding members. The league had seven teams when it was formed, located across the country in the Midwest, Texas, and California. The rules were almost the same as men's professional football, but with an extra point conversion kick worth two points and a running or passing conversion worth one. According to the Dayton Daily News, the Troopers' average age was 24 years old with an average height and weight around 5'6", 154. They practiced four days a week for two and a half hours per day and played an eight-game schedule. Despite the formation of the NWFL as an organized league, organization was not its strong suit. Over the following decade and a half, teams would pop up and fold across the country, all operating under the umbrella of the NWFL. The unifying feature of all these various teams? Women who just really wanted to play football. There was no draft because there was no college level to draft from. There was no pipeline. So basically, the owners would pull together some investment capital and then post an ad in a newspaper or on the radio. And then whoever showed up, showed up. And sometimes whoever showed up, that's who made the team. You know, other cities that had a lot of players come out got to, you know, sift through the talent. And then it, it went from there. Some teams were owned by businessmen. Other teams were owned by the players themselves. There was like this mix, which also caused some financial disparity. But in the beginning, the NWFL, you know, started off with good intentions and with the purpose of providing women an opportunity to play a game that they loved and and were told that they couldn't play and shouldn't be playing and with the hope that it was going to catch on and, and turn into something viable. Payment varied across NWFL teams through the years. Sometimes players weren't paid at all. Sometimes they would receive small amounts per game. A 1981 Akron Beacon Journal article called Women Can Play Football But Not For Much Money described how Cleveland Brewers quarterback Carol Segan was thrilled to earn just $5 per game. Brewers head coach Joe LaRue told the Beacon Journal, If the money's there, they're going to get paid. They're supposed to get $5 a game at the end of the season. But if they don't, they get one quarter a share of a stock that's valued at $100 a share. I hope all the girls get better salaries than they did last year. 
We spent $20,000 on the entire team last season for equipment, transportation, hotels, referees, and for renting Baldwin-Wallace Stadium for our game Sunday afternoon. But we still finished $700 in the hole. The NWFL produced several stars, most notably the aforementioned Linda Jefferson, a halfback for the Toledo Troopers. Jefferson was unstoppable in the ground game. At 21 years old, over four seasons, she racked up over 1,000 yards rushing per year and 72 touchdowns. And don't forget, the seasons were much shorter than today's NFL seasons. Jefferson was a track star in high school and also played softball and basketball. She claimed she could run a 4.7 or faster 40-yard dash. In 1974, Jefferson averaged 19 yards per carry and rushed for 965 yards. The subsequent year, she was voted Women's Sport Athlete of the Year after citizens in Toledo staged a get-out-the-vote campaign on her behalf. Jefferson, smiling in full pads, appeared on the cover of Women's Sport magazine, a magazine co-founded by Billie Jean King. One of the biggest struggles for the league, and stop me if you've heard this before, was media coverage. Digging through old newspapers, it's nearly impossible to find a story about an NWFL player that doesn't include commentary on their attractiveness, sexist and homophobic tropes, and of course, what some of their male spouses think about them playing football. Even though culturally the 1970s might have felt like the perfect time for the NWFL to thrive, players in the league were not necessarily motivated by the 70s political climate. Dilacreta says, A lot of these women, they were working class. They were already working outside the home or they, many of them were lesbians. And so their home dynamics would have looked very different. They didn't have children. So it didn't really feel applicable to them. And they really just wanted to play football. And I think similarly, Title IX being passed a couple years before the league came into play, we know that that would have put more sporting opportunities in place for women and girls, but that was too late for most of the women who played in the NWFL because Title IX is about scholastic sports, and the NWFL would have been a pro league. Without investment and exposure, NWFL teams across the country were constantly at risk of folding, even despite on-the-field success. In 1980, the winningest football team in history, the Toledo Troopers, would fold too. Here's Lindsay again. Time and money would be the two things that men's sports leagues are afforded time and time again. And for some reason, when it comes to starting women's sports leagues, 99% by men, The expectation is that it's just going to catch on and grow like that. And they're going to may have a return on investment like that. And that's just not how sports leagues function. And instead of riding it out and and giving the time investment as well as the capital investment, you know, they give up. By the end of the 1980s, the NWFL would cease operations entirely. That like 1979-1980 season really is a cutoff in terms of quality for the league and organization in terms of the teams that were playing. Most of the best teams folded that year. And the 80s, the last eight years of the league, was basically the same three to four teams that were player run and shoestring budgets that were getting no press coverage and no fans and nobody knew existed, just like popping up in a city and folding the next year and popping up in a like neighboring city and folding again and really just trying to keep it afloat. And by 88, there were so few teams that still wanted to play full contact football that eventually they just had to give up. And women's football kind of stayed frozen on pause until about 1999, which is when the next women's league started again. There have been many professional women's football leagues that have popped up in the years since the NWFL folded. 
As we all saw before Super Bowl 56, girls' youth flag football and tackle football leagues operate across the country. Football fans don't need to imagine a future where women are dominating America's most popular sport. All they need to remember is the past and the women of the NWFL. To read more about the players of the NWFL, check out Hail Mary by Frankie DeLacreta and Lindsay D'Arcangelo. Available now. A Jess Extra Extra. I always love them. So we have Maria Pepe, and now we have the NWFL. And the thing about listening to that was you hear, and it seems now it's like a running theme in addition to a league of their own on Off the Looking Glass of telling these stories of the history of women's sports. And the common thread in all of those stories is lack of investment, lack of exposure. And you see the NWFL also falls into that. You kind of hear about like women playing football in the 70s and you're like, that's like, you know, wow, like I, that's so weird or whatever. Like I never thought about that, how unusual. And then it's like, you think about it five seconds more and you're like, well, this was a really popular sport. Why wouldn't everyone want to play it? And so these games were actually really physical. And, you know, Linda Jefferson was on a magazine cover. Like she was really well known, maybe not, you know, nationally, but I mean, I guess maybe nationally too, certainly among like her teammates in Toledo and, and like Ohio. So I had just never heard of it before. And so I think it's interesting that now when you see the NFL try to make strides towards welcoming women into the league, whether it's as coaches or as fans, you know, buy our jerseys, come to our games. There's like not really any recognition of the fact that there were these leagues that existed decades ago. And even, you know, some connection then to the NFL too, like the Dallas team played at the same stadium as the Cowboys. So I think it's important for people to acknowledge the history of women playing the sport in a sort of effort to grapple with how to include them in the future. Like you can't ignore that there's a history here and then still move forward with all of these initiatives. Yeah, it's it's always whenever we're talking about some undercurrent of the sports world. I always feel like people will be like, well, women never played football. And I'm like, actually, anytime somebody says something like that, whether it's women never played football or like any other sport or any other group of people, you can usually find people doing something somewhere. Like if, yeah. if especially something as beloved in American culture as football, like for many of us who have played flag football, you see the allure of football. There are very few games that blend teamwork the way that football does and like breaks in the action where you actually get to gather then like explosive athleticism. And so I love hearing stories about where everyone's like, Hey, yeah, women wouldn't play football. They don't play football because that's the, like the mainstream story that's been fed us for decades. But it's like, well, if there's something awesome to do, everybody's going to want to do it. But I think the, the women playing football, like we were talking about offline, it's always going to be a struggle because football remains like the bastion of manhood. Yeah. A- and you can almost see the resistance even more so in football when you have like a female referee coming in or like an announcer or anything where there's women coming into football. Like you can see so many men get their backs up because it's this place that has been a man's domain for over a hundred years. Right. Or at least has seemed that way. In fact, that's not 
necessarily the case. I think these women have just been completely written out of the history of football. And so I admire Frankie and Lindsay for writing them back into it. And I think everyone should buy their book and read it and, and talk about the NWFL because history is important. And one of the things that we take away from a lot of these extra extras about these like women's sports leagues is why they failed. And I think the practical application of that is looking at some of the nascent women's sports leagues that have are happening now, like the NWSL, which is, you know, the new professional women's soccer league. And so if we can look back at, you know, the WSA, the WPL, the NWFL, and we see that they just needed time and they needed money, we can look right now at the NWSL and say, let's give them time and money. And hopefully this thing will be around in 30 years, like the WNBA has been now. Invest in women and also... I don't know. I'm putting you on the spot here, but I think Hail Mary and the story of the NWFL could be a version of a league of their own if they made it this decade. Oh, absolutely. I, what, I, would we, what would the name of that be? What would we name that movie? A football league of their own, maybe. I mean, I think there's <laughs> yeah. there's one thing we could do, which is like put Linda Jefferson in the Hall of Fame or, you know, put the Toledo Troopers do some sort of like honoring of the Toledo Troopers before a, a football game at some point. Like, I mean, I don't think that like you need to be validated by the NFL to feel like you are deserved and exist. But I do think that like it would be a good way to bring widespread recognition to some women who were not even, you know, didn't even consider them, themselves pioneers. They just considered themselves football players, which I think is really cool. Yeah. We could take a road trip to Canton and <laughs> off the looking glass road trip. I love middle Ohio. I mean, you, you know? know who else is from Toledo? Gloria Steinem. So there's just <laughs> all everything coming together. Right. <laughs> I'm certain there's a team there we could go see. Yeah. So we can hit up Canton and then we can go to Toledo. There is mm. a, a team in Toledo, the Toledo Reign. They play in the WFA, which is the Women's Football Alliance, which is all right. a full contact minor league. So I don't know. Maybe we could kill two birds with one stone. That sounds good. Should we tell the people who made this show? We should. We should, once again, shout out to Frankie and Lindsay. Check out yes. Hail Mary. We should thank Chris Cody and Mike Ryan for the wonderful voiceover work in the Extra Extra. And we should thank our guest, Carly Lloyd. Yes. And we should thank you for co-hosting and producing the show. Carl Scott for executive producing the show. Joel Shupak for sound designing the show. And we should thank Nameless Numberhead for the sketch. You heard the fake ad, as always, Henry and Mari doing the great comedy work. I think that does it for this week's episode. See you next time. Bye. 